This episode is full of spoilers and contains some not-so-super language. citizens welcome to the fortress of potitude i'm dave michaels i'm brian betts and we are the cape podcasters and this is the show where listeners booby it's christmas <laughs> it's christmas time booby we finally made it to our annual christmas episode the first year we did this show it was batman returns i'm still sorry for that because i'm sure <laughs> some of you had nightmares and you've had weird feelings that you're not so much able to express because it's such a horny movie and therapy's probably needed somewhere down the line. Last year, we did Jingle All the Way, which definitely didn't cure whatever ails we gave you before. <laughs> Santa Claus, afraid not. I put the cookie down. <laughs> when you juxtapose him that way, it's wonderful. That's a movie I'd watch. The crossover we didn't know we needed. Exactly. And that seems to be the case for a lot of crossovers. That's true. But this year... We're pouring all the whiskey, the whole bottle into that sweet eggnog, and we're downing it in one gulp because this year we are talking about Die Hard, directed by the John fucking McTiernan from 1988. Brian, I'm going to ask you a stupid question. Have you ever seen this movie? No. It turns out that all these years on Christmas Eve, <laughs> I've actually been watching Lethal Weapon and thought it was Die Hard. No, yeah. I've seen this movie so many times I can't count. I was waiting for you to say I've been watching It's a Wonderful Life, thinking it's <laughs> Die Hard the whole time. Yeah. You want the moon? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. I'll get you the moon. <laughs> uh, love that. <laughs> Dave, I'm going to ask you an equally stupid question. Have you seen this movie before? Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots. And before anyone asks, even though Captain Spoiler Mike had decided this is the question he wanted on this episode. Oh, I already know what it is. Yes, it's a Christmas movie. Absolutely it is. It does not take much to qualify something as a Christmas movie. I don't know why everyone's like, it needs Santa Claus, it needs elves, it needs cheer and joy. It's like, listen here, this movie gives me cheer and joy. The year's really long. December 25th, I want to watch some Germans get thrown out of buildings. That's all I ask. I don't, That's it. I don't ask for much. I don't. Underneath my Christmas tree, I just want, you know, some Germans falling. A machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Exactly. I just want to get right into this thing because I am so excited. Like, if I'm you felt so... my nipples right now, they are diamond cutters. So excited to finally talk about this movie that I cannot wait to get into it. So without further ado... Christmas Eve, 1988. John McClane, Bruce fucking Willis, lands in L.A. Another passenger on the plane notices he's stressed out and recommends that when he gets to where he's going, he takes his shoes off and makes fists with his toes. Do you want to know what blew my mind about this scene? Because this is always the crap I don't remember about this movie. Obviously, yeah. the pre-Nakatomi stuff. Right. Never remember it, for the most part. This was so realistic because I've been on so many flights that are just long- and you don't talk to the person next to you the entire time, but once you're about <laughs> to land and you know there's an escape that you can make, you finally, yeah. You're buddy buddy the entire time. Like if I'm 30,000 feet up, I don't want to talk to anybody if I can't escape. Exactly. 
I need to be able to get out of this conversation. And once the plane's down, I'd be like, hey, that was quite a landing, right? <laughs> That's pretty much what happens. Because John McClane's like grabbing the armrest here and he's like, oh, you don't like to fly. Yeah, what a question to ask, Captain Obvious, when we're on the fucking ground. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like to fly, but we're done now. We've, we've flown. It is past tense. Now we are just driving. In circles. With our one little wheel up front. Or however <laughs> planes work. Yeah, that, no, that's, I'm sure it's something like that. One little wheel. <laughs> McLean meets with his limo driver, Argyle, played by Devoro White. Sorry, Devoro fucking White. That's the right answer for that one for sure. And Argyle is going to drive him to Nakatomi Plaza where he's attending a Christmas party at his estranged wife's office, as you do. And I love Argyle because this is his first time driving a limo. And he makes sure to point that out to John McClane. Like, I was hoping you would tell me what we do because uh, first time, don't know what we're doing. And McClane's like, oh, yeah, it's the same, actually. So I'm just going to sit in front with you. Is that is that cool? Totally weird. Breaking every possible social rule that's ever been written. I hated that. I loved it because both of these guys <laughs> immediately out of their element. And I'm like, perfect. Very much so. To the point that Bruce Willis is like, hey, I want some Christmas music. And I was like, this is Christmas music. This is Christmas music. It is. It's Christmas in Harlem. I did make the argument it doesn't take much for something to be Christmassy, so. It gave me joy. Count it. On the way to Nakatomi, Argyle discovers that McLean works as a police officer in New York City, but his wife moved to California for her job, and both John and his wife expected each other to give in and move, but they're both too stubborn. Real healthy relationship. Yeah, awesome stuff. They live on opposite sides of the country. Some people call it the coasts. Yeah, some people do. The bread of the sandwich that is America. That's correct. Nobody says that. <laughs> hey, you want some of that Midwest meat? Oh. <laughs> I got some Oklahoma cheese here for you. <laughs> what does that mean? Hi, this is Wisconsin. You knock that shit off, Oklahoma. <laughs> we don't have much up here in the great white north. Hi, this is Minnesota. We're the great white north, motherfuck. You back up. I like this. Now we've got Midwest beef. We sure Which do. is there exactly is. what we needed we in the sandwich. We nailed it. <laughs> the great deli that we call America. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> McLean is unsure of where he'll be staying that night, so Argyle waits for him in the Nakatomi building parking garage. But I like the stakes that he sets up. He's like, I'm going to go park in this garage. Here's my card and my number. If you're going to get some, don't call me. If you need a ride, call me. Boom. Argyle's a good dude. He follows bro code to a T, man. Oh, yeah. He's just like, I'm going to hang out until I think you're gone, and then, you know, hope you're actually gone. <laughs> it's a weird way of ghosting someone. It's like professional <laughs> ghosting in a way. Yeah. At Nakatomi Plaza, Joe Takagi, played by James Shigeta, addresses his employees while Holly, played by Bonnie fucking Bedelia, is finishing up some paperwork. She tells her pregnant secretary, Ginny, played by Dustin Taylor, to join the party. <laughs> and this is normally a scene I would skip over in the synopsis. It is impossible to skip this one. I just wanted to make sure I got ahead of this. Bechdel test. Check. They did it, but at the same time, Holly tells Ginny, yeah, go out there, have a glass of champagne. To which Ginny stands up, holding her pregnant belly, <laughs> where we find out later she's only a few weeks away from giving birth. Yeah, two says, weeks. Oh, you don't think the baby's going to mind if I just have a little sip? I love the line, that baby's ready to tend bar. Nailed it. So good. I like how you have this mom who needs to justify getting 
a little, a little something, something. Just because it's been a hard year. It's the holidays. I get exactly. it. And you want not? Holly, cool boss. Lean in. Coolest boss. Meanwhile, downstairs, McLean discovers on the electronic directory that Holly is going by her maiden name, Gennaro. Then he takes the elevator up to the 30th floor party and to Holly's office. But I like how we show off John McLean's sweet detective skills already because he's typing in McLean on that crazy little screen, which isn't crazy now, but in, the, nope. in 1988, it was wild. Absolutely insane. And without blinking, he doesn't ask the guy. He's like, there's no McLean here. What's up with that? He just goes, fuck, Gennaro, fine. Types in right away. He's a problem solver. Yeah, he's like, this mother... Technically, he is, because he has multiple kids. That's true. He is a motherfucker. You got to say like Hans does at the end, though, or else it's just not worth it. Motherfucker. It's hysterical. <laughs> I, love, I it. love it. Every time. In Holly's office sits Harry Ellis, played by Hart fucking Bachner. He's back. He was a voice on Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, and that blew my mind. But now we get proper Ellis. He's just finishing up some cocaine. And he introduces himself to McLean. <laughs> it's just like a casual bit of cocaine because you have Takagi walk in with McLean after John McLean introduces himself to Takagi. And I love the first line that Takagi says to him. He's like, oh, this is uh, John McLean, Holly's husband. He's a cop. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, Takagi, you narc. And McLean's like, hey, you missed some. And he's got a little, got a little extra powder on his nose. McLean's cool, too. Right? Everybody's just totally chill. Those McLean's, they just want to see everybody get fucked up. Right? They know how to party. It's a party. Get that baby drunk. Do your cocaine in my wife's office. Huh? Perfect. It all checks out. Corporate America in the 80s. What a time. That's true. It is the 80s. I, I often forget that. As McLean washes up, he and his wife reconnect and say they missed each other, but then they quickly start arguing about Holly's decision to move to California. And then they get interrupted by Ginny, who requests Holly to join the party. Outside, a car pulls up to Nakatomi Plaza as a box truck pulls into the garage. Two men approach the security guard. Theo, played by Clarence Gilliard Jr., talks about basketball while Carl, played by Alexander Gudinoff, shoots the guard in the head. These are bad guys. They are, and this is why I never let anybody talk about basketball to me. <laughs> I'm always worried. It's not that it's my least favorite sport, and I find it uninteresting, and they're soft players, all of them. They just fall down on the hardwood, and then they're dead. <laughs> but it's because I'm worried that a West German terrorist is going to put a bullet in me, and then a sassy black dude's going to say, two points, and I don't need that to be my last thing I hear as I slip off my mortal coil. That's fair. Don't talk to me about basketball because I know you're just distracting me because your friend's going to shoot me in the dome. If anybody comes up to you talking about basketball, run or duck. Only options you have because, frankly, you're a dead man. You don't. <laughs> Dip, duck, dodge, dive, dodge. That's correct. <laughs> Theo uses the computer to shut down the elevators in the building except one and then seals all the exits of the garage and the building. In the garage, Hans Gruber, Alan motherfucking Rickman, and the rest of the team of terrorists exit from the back of the truck. Why'd you say terrorists like they weren't? Because we'll get there. Okay, that's fair. They lock the front door, and Eddie, played by Dennis Hayden, mans the security guard's desk. He's kind of the, the face of these terrorists. Tony, another one of the henchmen, played by 
Andrus Wisniewski makes his way to the telephone junction box, begins patching into the system, barely finishing before his brother Carl shows up with a chainsaw, cuts all the lines to prevent any calls from leaving the building. This scene always bothers me. I agree, too, because it almost feels like Carl just doesn't give a damn about the plan. Like, he just wants to move on to the next thing. It's like, yeah. listen, you got a plan to take over this building. Your brother, Tony, is doing everything he can, and then you just cause that much more pressure on him. Like, what's it going to do if he takes 10 extra seconds to make sure all the right lines are cut instead of you exactly. just going to town with a chainsaw? It's silly. Yeah, it vaguely establishes character later for Carl, but still. Yes, but I feel like at this point, Carl could have just blown the entire mission, which Hans will later say is completely foolproof. Spoilers, it's not. So McLean's upstairs, barefoot, making fists with his toes, when Hans and his henchmen arrive and start firing at the ceiling to gather their hostages. McLean hears the commotion, sneaks out of the office, into the stairwell with his gun, but sans shoes. It's not what you want, not ideal. You can't walk on guns. Have you tried? That's what all those like 30s detectives were called, gun shoes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely something I'd watch, though. And surprised we didn't see it in like, G-Men from Hell or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Gun shoes. The gum shoe. <laughs> He's got guns in his shoes. Not just a clever name. They rarely are. McLean sees more henchmen wheeling equipment on the next floor, so he continues up to the 32nd floor, which is under construction. Back on the 30th floor, Hans informs the Nakatomi Corporation employees that he's going to teach the company a lesson on the real use of power because their company has a legacy of greed. So he takes Takagi up to a boardroom where Theo asks Takagi for the key code so they can take the $640 million in bearer bonds from the company's vault. And I love this too because... Alan fucking Rickman. Alan fucking Rickman. He's just walking through all of Takagi's employees, and he's just listing things he knows about Takagi. Like, he has studied this man so deeply. It is terrifying. It is cocky. It is professional. And even when Takagi says, that's enough, he shakes Takagi's hand. He says, it's a pleasure to meet you. So good. Like, oh my God. Like, if... Being a criminal was a true profession. Like, you handed out business cards saying, like, oh, it's me, Hans Gruber, <laughs> professional criminal. Like, this is the type of guy. This, this would be, like, CEO of, of Criminal Incorporated. That's the name, huh? Yeah. That's the best we got? <laughs> that's, that's all I got right now, apparently. Come on down to Criminal Incorporated. Uh, we'll, we'll do the bad thing. We're creative. <laughs> hey, you need that thing that you don't have? Come on down to Cr Criminal Inc. and we'll, you know, get it for you. It's not yours now, but it could be if we say, hey, look over there. Got it. It's ours now. For Criminal the low, Inc. low price of I stole it. <laughs> we don't have coupons here because everything's free if you pay us to do the bad thing. <laughs> Criminal Inc. Call now and get two crimes for the price of one. Or three crimes for the price of four. We're criminals, too. Criminal Inc. What's really criminal are these prices. Or six crimes for, for the price of two. Or you can also do 16 crimes for the price of 13. <laughs> Accounting Criminal Inc. That's their white-collar branch. Our deals are so good, you'll think we're insane. Criminally insane. <laughs> The coffee just writes itself. It really does. So Takagi insists he doesn't have the codes, and Hans shoots him in the head. 
Meanwhile, McLean is watching from the next room because he was just like, I have a feeling something's going to happen in this boardroom. And then something happens in that boardroom and brains go all over the door that's all there? All over the door. But no bullet, which is weird, but the brains go everywhere. Brains everywhere. No bullet to be seen. It's actually bulletproof glass, but it's not brainproof. That's where they went wrong. Yeah. Everyone always thinks of the the cause of it. And they're like, oh, it's bulletproof. It's going to pass through some shit first. Got to think of that. Right. You got to get a bulletproof the brain. Why hasn't anyone thought of that yet? It's silly. It's total oversight. I don't understand. Like when I was born, just cut open my head. <laughs> put in a metal plate. Put in a metal bulletproof plate around my brain. Bulletproof brain. Takagi would be alive today with that technology. Exactly. Silly but that we're not no. doing that. Just give me the mom from Pete and Pete. <laughs> That's you how you got to ask that. for it from the doctor. Didn't she like just pass away too? I have literally no idea. I think weird Facebook friend of mine, Danny Tamborelli, just posted something about that. <laughs> wow. Small world. Either way, she probably would have been fine if she weren't Takagi's shoes. Exactly. Do you want a prop from a movie that's really obscure like Takagi's shoes? Criminal Inc. Sure, we could have given them to John McClane so he could walk around with shoes in this movie, but instead we stole them and gave them to you. <laughs> Oh, that would be like the weirdest version of like movie memorabilia is like they don't sell cool things. It's just used shoes from films. <laughs> it's like, oh, put yourself in the actor's shoes, literally. Movie memorabilia, Inc. Walk a mile in this actor's shoes or pretend to because acting. <laughs> I'm just crushing it with a copy tonight. <laughs> because acting. Oh, man. Hans tells Theo to begin hacking into the vault. They're going to have to do it the hard way. And McLean flees the room back to the 32nd floor. More of Hans' men are busy wiring some kind of utility room with explosives. Theo explains the vault's seven layers of security. He can get through the first six, but the seventh is an electromagnetic lock, and it's going to take a miracle. And Hans reassures him that it's Christmas time. It's a time for miracles. Which I love. There's so much charm in him. It's Christmas, Theo. Hey, yo, it's Christmas. <laughs> A very different movie. Very, very, very different movie. <laughs> Especially if you like switch the roles and put Cosby as Theo. I'm going to cut through the vault with a jello pudding pop. <laughs> I was just going to say they're there to steal jello instead of, <laughs> instead of money. That'd be like the weirdest crime syndicate, though. It wouldn't be so much like a Hawkeye tracksuit mafia. It would just be like. The ugly sweaters or something like that. Oh, yeah. Still clothing-based. Well, it'd have to be. Absolutely would have to be. McLean pulls the fire alarm, hoping to alert anyone to the hostage situation. But Eddie, the henchman that's down in the, in the guard's position, he calls up 911 to let him know that it's a false alarm. And then he's like, hey, Hans, that alarm came from the 32nd floor. It's going to send somebody to, to John real quick. It really will. And I like that quite a bit. Hans is a very, very smart guy. He says, where'd it come from? He finds out where it come from. He sends up his henchie, and here we go. Tony arrives on the 32nd floor while John hides. And then McLean ambushes him, crashing through drywall and aluminum beams. They're fighting, and they eventually fall down a stairwell where Tony breaks his neck and dies. Not what you want. You want to walk downstairs. Falling down him, not the way to do it. It's always like a 50-50 chance. Either you will die or you won't. Exactly. McLean takes Tony's radio and machine gun, puts Tony's body in a chair in the elevator, with a Santa hat and a message written on his sweatshirt. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. 
It is perfection. Perfection. Then there's a whole bit where he gets on top of the elevator and rides it down to the 30th floor, and he listens in as the terrorists discover Tony's body, and he's taking notes on his arm. Very smart. It's very smart, but I also like how John McTiernan is smart enough not to show Hans from John McClane's POV. Yes. It pays off later, but it is such a smart move. Hans tells Carl that his brother Tony is dead, and Carl, well, he's not very happy about that, and he wants vengeance. And I feel like Hans here has to really show his leadership qualities of calming Carl down. Stick to the plan, Carl. You're going to get your blood, but I'm going to need that sweet paper that's in this vault first, so maybe calm the fuck down. (laughs) Chill out. I know it's not ideal that your brother just died, but hey, we got a job to do. Listen here, Bubby. Your brother's dead, so now you're going to get a larger cut, booby. I'm so confused. Is that Sean Connery doing Ellis as as Alan Gruber? Yeah, Yeah, I love it. I'm just digging deep today. I love it. I don't have a Rickman. Rickman's such a hard voice to try to mock, mimic, and other words that mean the same thing. I don't do impressions, and I've ended up having to do more and more on this thing, and usually whenever I do them, I have to like have a starter word yeah. in order to get going. So it's like, Dabra, 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 Dabra ho, ho, right. ho, Dabra. Exactly. For this, it'll be like, Takagi, Takagi, Takagi. Mr. Takagi. Mr. Takagi. Hmm. It's an interesting voice to try to, no, I can't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is either. It's interesting. It's not man. even like nasally, but it's like the piece of skin that like protects your nasal opening in your yeah. throat, like it's gone. Right. It's He's completely missing, missing. Some kind of sinus flap. Do you want to be an actor with a unique voice in the future? C- come, Medicine Inc. We'll remove the thing to make you unique. <laughs> and then you can talk like Alan Rickman. <laughs> Medicine Inc. <laughs> Do you want to be a professional tennis player? who has just one forearm that's way too big and one that's normal looking, and you're going to look weird, but you're going to win all the championships later in your career. Medicine Inc. Medicine Inc. We'll do the the arm surgery. We'll make your arm swole. Come down to Medicine Inc. this weekend for our buy one elbow, get one elbow sale. Replace your old tennis elbow. Get it? Medicine Inc. That's what we were making a joke about. Medicine Inc. Did you guys like that Medicine Inc. commercial? It had all the laughs and the humor. Comedy Inc. <laughs> I'm doing a Tim and Eric bit the entire time. <laughs> I've been doing basically Rick and Morty, but the, uh, the interdimensional cable episodes where they just make it up as they go along. Hi there, HR person from Comedy Inc. Are you looking for writers? Lucky for you, this is Writers Inc. We have all the writers for writing your comedy Writings, here at Writers, Inc. Hi there, did you hear that Writers, Inc.? He literally meant ink for writing. This is Puns, Inc. Did you hear in that last ad how the pun guy referenced the ad before it? That's courtesy of us here at Segway, Inc. And (laughs) at Segway, Inc., we specialize in segways, like Back to Die Hard. Nailed it, Segway, Inc. On the roof. McLean radios for help, but the 911 operator tells him that this line is for emergency personnel only. He's like, no fucking shit, ladies. It sounds like I'm ordering a pizza. It's wonderful, and I, I love it. that line. Hans realizes that McLean is on the roof, and he sends his henchmen to the roof to get him. 
The operator sends a sole officer to investigate the call. Al Powell, Reginald fucking Johnson. He's just trying to buy some stuff from the, the gas station, Mart, I think it is. Just wants some Twinkies. Allegedly first pregnant wife. And this cashier is just being complete asshole to him. He really is. I hope that guy gets robbed by not a professional organization like Criminal Inc., but like right. Skid Row thugs just going in there and blasting. Exactly. Because like, that's oh, what he deserves. All of the cops are down in Nakatomi. We got to knock over this 7-Eleven. Shouldn't be hard. It's right down the street, and we know that because the camera tells us so. Sure does. Hey, I'm just going to walk out into the street and take a take a gander down the down the road at uh, Nakatomi Plaza. Yep, it's it's there. I guess I got to go do a drive-by. And what's weird about that shot also is that earlier in the movie when John McClane showed up to Nakatomi Plaza, he has to type in where his wife is, and he sees 30th floor. And the now deceased security guard goes, oh, yeah, they're the only people left in the building. It's like, well, then why did you have me type this in? Exactly. But secondly, when you see the master shot of Nakatomi, there are lights lit up throughout the building. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just how skyscrapers are. Like, they treat it like a Motel 6 whenever no one's there. Just leave the <laughs> light on for whoever. <laughs> I mean, you have kids. Surely they leave rooms and leave the lights on, right? This is Todd Bodan, owner of Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza. Are you having a Christmas party, but you don't want to be conspicuous? We'll leave the lights on for you. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. <laughs> I haven't heard one of those ads in a long time. Because Todd Bodette probably doesn't sound awesome anymore. Yeah, probably. That'll happen. <laughs> this is Todd Bodette. <laughs> I left the light on too long. Now <laughs> I have throat cancer. This is Todd Bodette. Turn the light off every now and then. <laughs> I've been living on the streets because the electric bill is through the fucking roof. <laughs> this is Todd Bodet. I'm so tired. I've been awake for 40 years because nobody will turn the damn light off. <laughs> this is Todd Bodet. I feel like I've just been living with moths. <laughs> they just keep coming. Somebody turn off the fucking light! Turn it off! (laughs) Oh, poor guy. And that's probably when he decided to get into Broadway, and he's like, oh, Spider-Man property, sweet, turn off the dark. And everyone's like, Todd, what are you you talking about, Todd? You just turn the lights off, don't turn them back on. Don't turn off the dark, you can't turn off the dark, the dark is the off! If I know anything, it's keeping lights on. That's how you turn the dark off. That's right. Ah, it's a dangerous, vicious circle of life. <laughs> Speaking of dangerous circles, the helicopter pad on the top of this, this Nakatomi Plaza where, where John McClane is. Carl and a few of the other henchmen show up and they just start shooting at him on the roof of the building. And like nobody in the vicinity hears it or calls the police or anything. They're just shooting at John. And he escapes the rooftop through the building's HVAC system, using his gun to stop the fan, and then makes his way back down to the top floor. And the gun thing seemed to work out for him, so now he's going to use it to rappel down an elevator shaft, because the terrorists are still behind him. It's a weird choice to use your only weapon as your safety harness. It's bold. But what else did he have at that point? He's not even wearing shoes. That's a very good point. Obviously, the gun is going to break. He falls, but catches himself on the entrance to a ventilation duct. That's lucky. Isn't it? 
That movie could have ended right there. And then he fell down the <laughs> elevator shaft and died. I just see credits rolling with the open elevator shaft or ventilation shaft or whatever the shaft is. Sure. So much. Shaft. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, that's where my head went right away, and I know it's incorrect. That's fair, but it though. it felt good. It did. It sounded good. Come on down to Jingles, Inc. Well, we'll, we'll smash up your favorite theme songs. <laughs> you like Flash and Shaft? Well, guess what we have in store for you? Flaff. That's right. It's our most famous entity that we've ever created. Uh, Flaff. Oh. <laughs> Written by Queeb. If Flaff isn't quite your style, we also got... Shash. <laughs> it's the same thing, but the other letters. Oh, man. It's kind of like a Star Wars cantina. Like Team America style. Just play it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? It's perfect. Oh. Flaff and Slash. Shash. Was Slash? No, Slash is the thing. Shash. Shash. Sorry. Apologies to... Shash and Flaff. <laughs> McLean gets out of the vent while Sergeant Powell enters the building, and he's totally fooled by Eddie's security guard act. And he's like, all right, this is a wild goose chase. As he's leaving, John tries to break the window with a chair to get his attention, and then two henchmen show up to stop him. Because they're like, hey, you're making a lot of noise with that chair on the window. We know where you are. I've always found it weird with Eddie the security guard when Al goes to like investigate because he's watching a football game. Yeah. And it's always weird how he just sits there all nonchalantly, like, he comes back, and he's like, just back to the game. And he's like, oh, I got $50 on those assholes. It's like, you've been watching this game. You understand the way that this game is going up to this point. Like, we've all watched games. Games don't just turn on a dime That's out of nowhere to make you get angry about college kid assholes and your $50. I mean, Right away, as just a human being on this earth, I got a Tombodet light bulb going on over my head going... <laughs> That's a weird thing to say to another human being for a game that you've been watching this entire time. Maybe that guy was just like, I want to start a conversation. And he's like, all I can talk about is this game I've been watching because I'm a security guard, a place that nothing's happening at. So this is what I have. Oh, they they messed up that play. I got 50 bucks on those assholes. (laughs) Maybe if you put it that way. (laughs) All I'm saying is Reginald Vell Johnson here, not coming off so much cop like he's coming off. Not so much that he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but that he definitely stayed at a Motel 6 a Motel 6. Night. He's like, yeah, they wouldn't shut off the fucking light. <laughs> I couldn't sleep at all. What am I even doing today? <laughs> it's also Christmas Eve. He's probably just, you know, making the rounds. It's like, ah, there's nothing going on here. A security guard's totally chilled. He just, like, let me walk around all on my own. Very inconspicuous. Ain't nothing terrible going to happen here today. <laughs> so John's trying to get his attention. The henchmen show up, and I love that whenever John's just alone somewhere and you hear that bong of the elevator, you know shit's about to go down. I really like that because it is kind of like an audio cue of, hey, have you been bored with all this exposition and storytelling? Here comes the shooty part. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's like a, a Pavlov's dog kind of situation where it's just like, bong, all right, here come bullets. John McTiernan just training the audience. Exactly. So the first henchman, Marco, he comes in and he surrenders immediately. He's like, oh, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And John's like, fine, I won't shoot you. And the other guy comes in behind him, guns blazing, and John shoots the shit out of him. Yeah, he does. And then Marco jumps up on the boardroom table, the zigzaggy conference table. I've never been comfortable with this table. 
apparently it's it's got some some feng shui. That's what they said in the director's comments are feng shui. So it's super appropriate for this this setting. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have no idea. It's a weird table. It is. So Marco is on top and John's underneath and he's, you know, chasing him with the gun and, and they run to the end of the table and Marco's like, man, you should never hesitate to kill somebody who's going to kill you. And John's like, that's good advice. And then shoots the shit out of him from below the table, through the table. Got him. Apparently, uh, Mr. Bruce Willis lost a lot of his hearing because of this particular scene. Yeah, uh, John McTiernan wanted the bullets to be real, 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 real loud so that the actors actually had something to act against. Yeah. So he actually got special blanks and squibs that were just super duper loud. Not what you should do to your actors ever. Yeah, especially Bruce Willis is underneath this table, so it's going to echo. And this is like his one of his first, if not his first, major motion picture release. And there goes just two-thirds of the hearing in one of his ears. And now forever he can't hear because of Die Hard. Well, it gave and it took. It took away his hearing, but it gave him a career outside of, what was it, Moonlighting is what he was doing? Yeah. With Sybil Shepard? Exactly. He only did this movie because Sybil Shepard got knocked up and he's like, oh, thank God. Oh, I have 11 weeks off. I can do that Die Hard movie? All right. So McLean takes Marco's body and throws it out the window onto Al's police car. That's a good way to send a message. That'll do it. Didn't write anything on this body, though. That would be a better way to send a message. I mean, so far, that's the best way to send a message is to write it on the body. Do you get upset whenever you go to grandma's funeral and you wish she had one last message for you? <laughs> well, we took a play out of Die Hard Playbook and started writing on your loved ones. It's Last Message Inc. Last Message Inc. and Criminal Inc. are teaming up to do a new kind of messaging. Do you have somebody who's threatening you? You can send them a message. <laughs> On a corpse, send a message, and also send a message with corpse messaging from Criminal Inc. and Messaging Inc. <laughs> so dark. <laughs> Do you not have a loved one that's recently deceased, but you have a horse? Well, good <laughs> news. We could cut that horse's head off and put it in a bed. Belmont Steaks, Inc. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> So John McClane does not enlist the help of any of these organizations. He just throws the body straight onto the car. And for some reason, the terrorists are like, oh, well, now he knows. Guess we got to shoot at this cop. So now there's people shooting at Al, and he's driving backwards to get away. He crashes, and John's like, welcome to the party, pal. It's not a party, John. Well, it was. That's true. It started as a party. Well, now it's kind of just like a bad man party. So really, just the host shifted. Yeah, I guess so. Al just showed up fashionably late. That's all it was. In a news equipment room, journalist Richard Thornburg, played by William fucking Atherton, overhears the call for help on a police scanner, goes out to investigate the story. William fucking Atherton may be the biggest prick in film history, and he plays it so well in everything he does. I hate him so much, and I'm... I don't know how much of it is his acting or if he's really an asshole. I bet he like donates to every charity imaginable. Like he's the greatest guy off screen. He's just like, I got a big prick feel. I got to lean in. Daddy's got to eat. Got one of those faces, you know? He does. And he has one of those voices too. Oh yeah. Just the whole, the whole situation going on with this person is irritating and just, he's a dick. He plays like that fake authority figure really, really well. Like if you look at him in Ghostbusters. Yeah. 
or even a, like biodome. I can't believe I'm saying that, but wow! Like you give him just the tiniest bit of power, and he runs. Makes me curious how much of it is an act. I'm gonna. I like our theory that he's really just a sweetheart in, in real life, but you know, typecast as a dickhead. <laughs> Got to be typecast as something in Hollywood these days, because they don't let anybody spread their wings, fly. That's no right. more peacocks. As the police arrive at Nakatomi Plaza. Hans insults McLean over the radio for watching too many cowboy movies. John admits he's rather fond of Roy Rogers, saying, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Unbelievable line. Dave, I have an actual IMDb trivia fact for you. Okay, I'm having a ball. Fire away. The movie's iconic line, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, almost came out differently. According to various interviews and commentaries, John McTiernan thought the line should be, Yippee-ki-yay. Bruce Willis argued that it was Yippee-ki-yay, Apparently, they tried both versions to see which one sounded better, and the now famous Yippie Kaye won. So all the nice things I said about John fucking McTiernan, maybe <laughs> take them with a grain of salt, because uh, he's wrong, beyond Yippie wrong, in this one. Silly. It Absolutely is. silly. Meanwhile, Theo is making good progress on the vault, but the, terrorists, <laughs> but the terrorists have lost their bag of detonators to McLean. Han sends another henchman to retrieve it, because dude just has not learned a lesson yet. It's true. Just keep sending one henchman at a time. Surely we'll get him. It's not going to work. I promise you it's not going to work. McLean briefs Alan what's going on via radio. Then Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, played by Paul fucking Gleason, shows up. And I, I don't even know why he's here, and we're going to get there. <laughs> I do know why he's here, but I don't know why he's here. That's, that's fair. I have another trivia fact. Okay. From the IMDb. Deputy Chief Robinson says that John McLean could be a fucking bartender for all we know because of McLean's claim to be able to spot a phony ID. Prior to becoming a well-known actor, Willis was a bartender. Cool. Hey, hey, trivia facts. It makes me really upset knowing that in January when we go over the Indiana Jones movies, all four of them, you're going to get that pretty much same thing about Harrison Ford being a carpenter. I guarantee it. Oh, 100%. And I'm also on to one of you. I don't know who it is, but somebody keeps leaving 9-11 facts on all these IMDb pages. It's not me. I promise it's not me. Like, they're so bad, I was like, I can't even read that one. I have still been leaving facts for you. Oh. And I've shifted my gears just a tiny bit, obviously, going away from the Bruce Willis and the vent cameo. Sure. They're still not getting approved. So I have not found the magic bullet yet. For IMDb to approve a random trivia fact. Are they actually true? No. Oh, well, God, that will, no. That's probably part of it. They're borderline true. Oh, okay. Well, that usually flies through without a problem, so. Like, on this one, it was, the one that was not approved is that this building stands in for its own stunts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think IMDb is going <laughs> to. It's clever. I like it. It has to be dumb enough. That yeah. you might read it out loud, but still find its way in there because the IMDb trivia facts really are the asshole of film trivia. Absolutely. It's, it's the director's commentary by just Joe Schmo, who doesn't actually know what he's talking about. And yet you read multiple ones. Uh, usually all of them. <laughs> like some kind of, well, also Joe Schmo asshole. Fair enough. <laughs> Hans and company have posted up in Holly's office due to its proximity to the foyer. Holly comes to the terrace to make two requests, a couch for Ginny and hostage bathroom breaks. And I like how Hans is like, yeah, both those make sense. All right. Yeah, that's reasonable. I like that Hans is like, 
what idiot put you in charge? And she's like, you did when you shot my boss. <laughs> Not wrong there either. Gotcha. But it's weird because Holly does take over this leadership role, but Hans also shows a bit of a humanistic quality. Right. And that complicates things. It does. She's sure to use her maiden name, Gennaro, so she can't be linked to John. Because she doesn't really know what's happening with that whole situation right now. She just knows he's running around screwing up everybody's plans. Yeah, but she also says, my name's Holly Gennaro, miss. Right. right when she's standing next to the door that says Gennaro on it. Like, right. he has to recognize that he's in her office. He might not know that he's in her office. He just knows he's in an office, and she's the one coming to him. He's a very smart boy. Her name's on the door. There's a name on the door, I should There's say. There's a name on the door, but he doesn't necessarily know that the person that came to make the demands is the same person whose office he's occupying. That's very fair, yes. So he asked her her name by saying Mrs. and, you know, trailing off to let her finish, and she says, Gennaro, Ms. Gennaro. She shuts that down hard. I have no connection to this, this monkey in the wrench, this fly in the ointment, this pain in the ass. It would be a totally different movie also if it got, like, real Stockholm-y here, and, like, you have them locking eyes, and it's like, are they? Gonna, <laughs> Wait, is that the direction this is going to go in? I didn't see that one coming. Weird. I know they had marital issues, but he's a terrorist, kind of. <laughs> she likes the bad boys. It's that Helsinki syndrome that they That's were talking right. about. <laughs> In Sweden. <laughs> Finland. Finland. <laughs> I always love that. That's a great little aside. So the police set up spotlights and send a four-man SWAT team to enter the building. John warns Al that the terrorists have heavy artillery, but after the terrorists shoot the SWAT team, they send in an armored vehicle to break in the front entrance. Where was this armored vehicle? Because it seems like it was a couple miles away when they called it in. Like, it wasn't part of the arsenal that they brought. They had to dramatically drive this thing in. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you bring in the, the armored RV, you have to set it up with the, the speeding down the... I don't know. Maybe they just <laughs> kept it behind for the dramatic entrance. To surprise the terrorists. What a surprise. Sort of. Sort of. It seems like they're pretty well equipped to handle this thing. Yeah, because two more henchmen fire a rocket launcher at the armored vehicle. Hans orders them to hit it again, and McLean's like, you, you made your point, stop it. And Hans like, I'll take it into consideration. Hit it again. So McLean's like, oh, oh, you want to play games? I have your C4. I'm going to just put it on this computer chair and send this down the elevator shaft and blow up the entire second floor, take out your henchmen. How about that? And then he does just that. Yeah. And that's a big old explosion. It's a huge explosion. And he just like looks down the shaft and waits for it. It's a very silly move on his part. It was. And after he even saw the fire coming up, he's still staring at it. And then <laughs> yep. he says, oh shit. As he's looking at this giant fireball coming up. And then it occurs to him he should move. Oh, you know what would be a good idea? Getting the fuck away from this explosion. He does. Dramatically. Very dramatically. Back in the foyer, Ellis snorts a little cocaine and goes to negotiate with Hans. And I love this, too, because he snorts the cocaine, and I love how Holly looks over and she goes, Oh, no, he's going to go cut a deal. He did the cocaine. That's business, <laughs> Ellis. Oh, no. Ellis is on. <laughs> Ellis is like, I'm going to get John to cooperate. And he gives Hans McLean's name. Yeah, that's not great. And then Hans is on the radio immediately like, Mr. John McLean. And I love that too, just so much because McLean doesn't even really blink. He's like, yeah, you're probably going to figure that out eventually, weren't you? Right. And he's like, he's a little concerned. He's like, I don't know how you got that information. Hope Holly's okay. But we all knew this was going to happen. 
And outside, Thornburg sends his assistant to look up McLean's information, which, you know, is a whole side thing that's happening throughout this, this endeavor. But it doesn't need to be, because even outside, Deputy Chief Robinson and Al are talking, and Al's like, I think this guy's a cop. Like, he's got this hunch that he's a cop. Hans Gruber just said he's a police officer. Right. It's not hard to just call New York and say, hey, you got a John McLean who's a cop? Okay. Well, that's what he sends his assistant to do. But he does a bad job because the rest of this movie, I'm not convinced that Dwayne T. Robinson knows that John McClane's an actual cop. He says we're trying to figure that out. Oh, yeah. Well, he's also just playing coy with the FBI when they arrive because he doesn't want to look like an absolute idiot. Oh, he's got a big old FBI boner. He sure does. But right now I'm talking about Thornburg. That's true. The the journalist. That's right. Oh, quotes, journalist. Exactly. The guy with the camera. Yeah, if he were a modern journalist, he'd be on Fox News. We'll just leave it at that. Not a political podcast. Not a political podcast. So Ellis tries to convince John to hand over the detonators. And he pretends that he's John's friend. And McLean tries to convince Hans that he doesn't know Ellis, but Ellis sticks to his story. I have another actual IMDb trivia fact. When Ellis meets with Gruber, Carl could be seen pouring Ellis a glass of Coca-Cola. This is most likely because Ellis, who had been seen snorting cocaine throughout the film, asked them if they had any Coke which they mistook as him mentioning soda. I absolutely love that. I adore that fact. (laughs) That's a very good one. And the great thing about that trivia fact is that it's all conjecture. Oh, yeah, but that's the right type of conjecture. It absolutely is. Like If you're going to conject, that's how you do it. Don't think I would have drawn that conclusion without that fact. And I've seen this movie like a hundred times. Well done to that person and no one else. And nobody else. Unfortunately for Ellis, when John doesn't turn over the detonators, Hans shoots him. And I just love that, too, because Ellis was so cocky with that stupid smirk that he oh, has. Booby. Thinking he's getting away with something that he's helping out. And then he just turns and says, Ah, Hans, Booby, you know I'm not a method actor. Here, put the gun away. And uh, Hans does not put the gun away. And then Hans goes out to the party where everybody's screaming because they just heard Ellis get shot. And he holds up the, the radio so John can hear everybody screaming. And he says... I'll start killing hostages until the detonators are returned. Eventually, I'll probably get to somebody you do care about. Oh, he's so good. Oh, chills. Absolutely. At this point, Hans finally addresses the police and begins his list of of demands. He has a name of fellow freedom fighters he wants released from prison around the world, and he demands a helicopter to take him and the hostages to the airport. And I love how some of these freedom fighters, he doesn't even know. He just read it in Thai magazine, and it's like, that's good enough for him. And even his henchmen are like, who the fuck is that? He's like, I don't know. I'm just, I just need to get them busy and off my case for a minute. And because really, I'm a criminal genius. And most importantly, make it an international issue so the FBI show up. And without hesitation, here come Special Agent Johnson, played by Robert Davey, and Agent Johnson, played by Grant L. Bush. No relation. Which is such a great line. I don't know if you stuck around for the credits, but did you see how they are credited? In the film. Yes, I absolutely did. Because Robert Davey plays Big Johnson, and in my possible favorite thing that's ever happened ever in the world, Little Johnson is played by Grand L. Bush. So good. (laughs) Little Johnson is played by Grand L. Bush. It's always going to make the Johnson look littler. (laughs) Like, that would be a weird career turn. It's like, uh, I'm not Grandel Bush anymore. Just I couldn't get big roles. Now I'm Grandel shaved. And now I'm finally <laughs> rising up the ranks because I just, they f- look at me as a bigger actor than I am. I don't know what it's about. 
I've really, just by a simple trim of the last name, I now appear to be a bigger star than I was. You change the optics just a tiny little bit, and suddenly your sag rate just goes up? It's one way to erect a career. <laughs> just go into auditions. You already got it in the bag. Oh, man. What a ballsy move by him, changing that name. <laughs> so the FBI are here, and they take over control from Deputy Chief Robinson, who's just like immediately all over the FBI guys. Like, yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, whatever's going on in there, it's not my fault. It's this this McLean guy who might be a cop. And I don't think he ever finds out if he is a cop. Uh, not until it's all said and done, probably. And even then, not sure he's totally convinced. He's a terrible, terrible cop. He's, he's a pretty bad T. Robinson. chief. Dwayne. <laughs> I really like when Powell is like, do you need a breath mint? Because this guy's kissing so much FBI ass. Now, when you kiss ass, why do you need your breath to smell good? Oh, it's actually more for the cooling factor on the, on the receiver. Are asses hot that you need to have that cool going down after you go the mwah? Well, it's not the cooling for the person kissing the ass. It's, it's the cooling sensation for the ass being kissed. So you want to feel that those sweet, cool lips on your bottom. Dave, stick a peppermint up your butt yeah. and tell me it's not a cooling sensation. Does your asshole have taste receptors? I don't know that it's a taste thing. So, Well, that, that, that just gets into the, the question of does peppermint actually cool or is it just a, a mouthfeel sensation brought on by taste? This is really interesting. I feel like we've like stumbled across like a philosophical discussion here. <laughs> Taste Butts, Inc. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those, like, if you stick a York peppermint patty up your butt, do you still get that sweet peppermint chocolate cooling (laughs) sensation? Or is it just you sticking something up your butt? Here's what chewing five gum feels like. Here's what sticking five gum up your ass feels like. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but I wouldn't even want five gum doing it. I would want to see just like, Somebody bend over, somebody mimic like sticking something up the butt, and then just the orbits go going, fabulous, <laughs> with her big smile. <laughs> For a clean butt. <laughs> well, we don't know if it cleans. We, it definitely doesn't clean. Definitely but doesn't it might clean. freshen. We just don't know. There's only one way to find out. I'm still waiting. <laughs> Science hasn't really progressed yet to the point of butt peppermints so one day when it gets there we'll report back give gwyneth paltrow time i'm sure she's on it oh yeah all sorts of goop butt mints <laughs> oh gross uh, try your own home recipes and and send your emails to kate podcast don't don't do don't that. do that don't, don't we're not liable right if you're gonna stick a peppermint up your ass it's on your own accord did podcasters tell you to do a thing that was dangerous and you probably shouldn't have done? You should have known that as an adult human being. Lawyers, Inc. <laughs> Lawyers, Inc. will help you sue that, that darn podcast that made you stick the, the mints in your bum. <laughs> Hans goes up to inspect the explosives in the mechanical room on his own for reasons. He's like, you know what? I need to get away from all these damn hostages for a minute and check things out myself he needs a break i get it so he heads up to the top floor he's he's taking a peek at his explosives he jumps down and wouldn't you know it there are john mcclain's bare feet this scene not in the book it's also the first scene that these two filmed together i think this was alan rickman's first scene 
Really? The the scene where he has to do a convincing American accent is his first scene, where he has not even established his character yet within himself. That's the one. That's amazing. Good for him. He pretends to be an escaped hostage, Bill Clay. And John gives him a handgun because, you know, these two haven't seen each other yet. They don't really know what each other looks like, although Hans is pretty sure that this is the guy running around (laughs) ruining all their plans because, you know, he's dirty and has a machine gun. Right, and he's bleeding all over the place. (laughs) And John McLean should have realized that this is Hans fucking Gruber because, yes, he is using a very, very good American accent, but also he's missing that flap of skin in your throat. (laughs) Exactly. So he sounds like Alan Rickman. So he sounds like Alan Rickman. My name is Bill Clay. (laughs) Doesn't sound terribly convincing. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it works. Yeah, yeah, it's not a British accent. I'll give you that. Yeah, but exactly, or a German accent is what he's trying. It's right. complicated. It's, who knows? I don't even think Alan Rickman knows what kind of accent he's trying to do here. Crushing it. Either way. Either crushing way. It. He's still just uh, absolutely sending it. John gives him a handgun, and Hans pulls it on him instantly. Just like you, idiot. You gave me a gun. Now I'm gonna shoot you in the face. And McLean is like. Oops, no bullets. Er, you think I'm a fucking idiot? And I love because, like clockwork, you hear the ding of the elevator. Boom! It's wonderful because it's so Gruber's good. just like, you were saying? And then you know it's on all over again. Yeah. Before McLean can do anything with Hans, the elevator comes and Carl and two other henchies come out. And McLean takes out the henchman, but he runs out of ammo. And now they're, they're in this standoff in this computer room. And Hans, now that he knows that McLean is barefoot, is like, Carl shoot the glass, but he says it in German, and Carl's like, I don't know what you just said. So then he has to repeat himself in English, and Carl's like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then they do that, and the glass goes everywhere. There's so much glass all over the floor, and poor John in his bare feet is like, well, that's, that's going to be a problem. Carl and Hans throw a flash grenade. By the time the smoke clears, McLean is gone, but he left behind the bag of detonators. So they take the detonators, they fuck off. Seems like everything's coming up Hansy right now, isn't it? Yeah, except that they didn't quite get John, and they just kind of leave him, which I think is an interesting choice. They didn't hunt him down, but they got the detonators. They are going about their plan still. That's true. Theo informs Hans that he's broken through the first six levels of the vault, and he's ready for Hans to disengage the final electromagnetic lock, however he plans on doing that. Theo really does sass Hans quite a bit. Theo's great. But Theo, I feel like, can get away with it. Yeah. None of the other guys could. He's the brains. He's, he needs him to get through the, the locks. Hans is a good leader, man. Yeah. Good leadership qualities for being such a mean man. Absolutely. And I, it is bold of Theo to keep joshing around with him after he's unlocked all the locks, though. Probably not what you want to do, because this man has killed a lot of people tonight. Yeah. So maybe don't. Maybe don't. But then again, Theo also does have another job to do, which we will learn about shortly. Yes, that's so true. So maybe Hans is like, ah, you'll keep fucking with me. Fine. <laughs> While all this is happening, the reporter Thornburg, his assistant returns with John McLean's records and his wife's L.A. address. And they're like, oh, well, we need to go to there. The professional that he is is going to dox a family. <laughs> you know it. McLean is in a bathroom pulling glass from his bloody feet and Al's keeping him company over the radio. He tells John the FBI have arrived and are running the terrorist playbook step by step. John Worried that he won't make it out alive, asks Al to deliver an apology to his wife for not following her out to L.A. It's a very touching moment in this movie that has little emotion in it until this point. Was this ad-libbed? 
Because I've read that this was ad-libbed. I have read that this was ad-libbed, and it's the reason Bruce Willis got the part in 12 Monkeys. And right. then the script came out somewhere, and it turns out he didn't ad-lib it that much. Okay, so he's just a really good actor in this moment because yes. he's absolutely sending it in this oh, moment. He he's crushing it, and it's this part of the movie is like there it is. That's the emotional through line of the whole damn thing. Right. This is Bruce Willis before Bruce Willis just did jobs to collect a paycheck when he was actually trying still. <laughs> oh, you mean and Die it turns Hearts out four and five? He actually had it. He has acting chops. They're in there. Oh, absolutely. He just chooses not to flex them ever. Never right. ever. Instead, he's like, I'll do an Expendables movie. You're saying that this one's going straight to DVD? Yeah, man. Of course. Fine. <laughs> What's the paycheck look like? <laughs> <laughs> Special Agent Johnson instructs a power company worker to turn off the power for a 10-block radius around Nakatomi. And it takes some, some finagling, but they get the power out, and the smug FBI agents congratulate themselves for making the terrorists shit their pants while inside the vault doors open and they're having the time of their <laughs> fucking lives. It is perfect juxtaposition, perfect so editing. Good. I love it. Everybody thinks they're winning. It's great. McLean makes his way back up to the top floor and finds a metric fuckton of C4 wired to blow up the roof. He tries to radio Al about the double cross, but he's cut off by Carl, who takes the radio and McLean's gun and the two fists fight because, well, this is personal. It is very personal. And I have some issues with this fist fight because it does look really, really good. Yeah. Because they fight for a really long time. People's faces are getting time. bashed in the floors. They're throwing the punches. They're throwing the kicks. But there's one moment once they get to the stairs mm -hmm. where Carl winds up like he's about to do an action figure karate <laughs> chop on Bruce chop. Willis out of nowhere. And that's the one Bruce catches and is able to turn the whole thing around. And that's when he starts yelling about cooking him and eating him. It's so weird. And also they fight upstairs, which I never understood how that's ever a thing. I don't I don't know. I guess if you have to eventually hang somebody with a chain next to a staircase, you fight up the stairs. And that's what happens, because Bruce Willis wraps the chain around Carl's neck and then throws him against the wall. And then he's like, got him. And he walks away. Done. <laughs> I've confirmed my, all my other kills, but this one. Nope. Got him. <laughs> Good enough for me. He's hanging over there. <laughs> Thornburg arrives at Holly's house and threatens her housekeeper to let him talk to the children. And she's like, well, fuck, well, what else am I going to do? And while this is happening, Hans is watching a TV in the office. And he recognizes the children that Thornburg is interviewing from photos in Holly's office. And all of a sudden he has this moment where he's like, oh, shit, what's this photo that's been faced down this whole movie? <laughs> and he picks it up and it's, it's the McLeans. And he's like, oh, I got to go talk to Holly. You think? So he orders all the hostages to the roof, and he takes Holly with him to the vault. So two army helicopters approach Nakatomi Plaza. Johnson and Johnson ride in one of them. Their plan is to ambush the terrorists at a probable 25% hostage loss rate, which they're totally fine with. They are, and you see a little bit of the background, especially from like Robert Davies, like, oh, it feels like Saigon again! I love that, that little Johnson is like, I was in junior high, dickhead. I love that so much, because so it good. just shows like this fake authority again this fake power like you have to still show off even though you are in charge i don't know it felt yeah. very like high school football team to me oh yeah big time the remaining terrorists usher the hostages to the roof mclean shoots them as he chases the hostages searching for holly they get to the roof Ginny tells john that holly is with hans and then john tries to warn the helicopter not to land while also getting the hostages away from the explosives so he just starts wildly firing machine gun into the air 
which kind of sends the message to everybody like, hey, get off the roof. It does, but at the same time, it sends a message to the helicopter of that's a terrorist. Exactly. Which, not wrong when that's happening. Right? There's a guy on the roof (laughs) shooting a machine gun. That must be the bad guy. Let's get him. So they start shooting at John, and naturally, he uses a fire hose to rappel down the side of the building. Now, you said rappel, and that was an interesting choice of word there because he jumps off the side of the building as the roof blows. Rappelling is more of a controlled thing. I feel like he had in- the intent to repel. I don't know, man, because whenever I think of, like, repel, I think of Blues Brothers, like, hut, 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 yeah, hut, hut, sure. hut, going down the side of a building. Yeah. And this was, oh, shit! Well, I think as he was tying the hose around his waist, the idea was, I'm going to repel. But then, well, Eddie informs Hans that the hostages have returned to the 30th floor in a panic, so Hans pushes the trigger for the explosives, and the entire roof blows, and he's like, well, I guess I just got to jump. All right, forced awesomeness, got it. (laughs) The explosion engulfs the FBI helicopter, killing both Agent Johnson's and everyone else on board. Naturally, the fire hose reel snaps off the wall and follows McLean off the roof, but luckily he shoots his way through a window, lands inside before the reel clears the roof of the building, and then it falls and it starts pulling him down, but he gets the, gets the, the hose off of his waist in time. It's very dramatic. It is, and I feel like this is like the most dramatic scene every single time I watch this. Yeah, because like he's a, like getting pulled so slowly to that edge. It works really, really well. It does, it does, and it's it's the right pacing to be like, okay, yeah, we're still going. Like they blew up the building, but John's still in trouble. He's safe, but now nah, he's still in trouble. The helicopter falls and explodes on the thirtieth floor, setting the foyer on fire. And then, just for good measure, the elevator blows up too. And right before it does. Boom. I love it. I love it so much. It's really good. John follows his wife's screams to the vault, where Hans is hurriedly loading up the bearer bonds. But on the way, he notices a mail cart with holiday tape and gift wrapping supplies. And he also discovers he's only got two bullets left. That's not a lot of bullets. No, it's it's not going to be enough to, to do whatever he intends to do, I bet. Or, or maybe no, it will be. No, but I mean, luckily, he knows that there's only two left. So he's like, ah, watch this. I got I to gotta come up with a scheme. You know who we haven't checked on in a while? It's Argyle. Yeah, he's just hanging out in the parking garage. He's just been in the garage, hanging out, doing his thing. Drinking with the bear? Big teddy bear? The, in the giant back teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> but now he sees Theo unloading an ambulance from the back of the box truck. And he just rams the ambulance with his limo and then punches Theo in the face. One clean punch and Theo's down. It's like, yeah, that's the appropriate amount of punches whenever you punch a nerd. That checks out. That's that's the vault nerd guy. Of course one punch is going to take him out. Especially from Argyle, who's a badass. It's true, but that's the most realistic thing in the world. But how cool would it have been if Argyle like, just woke up and he just started talking about like Lakers-Celtics like rivalry in the <laughs> 80s and whatnot, and I could just hear Argyle go, no, don't do it. No! 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 Put that gun down! <laughs> <laughs> the teddy bear shoots. <laughs> right, because Theo's not going to do it himself. Turns out the teddy bear was a terrorist the whole time. I think it'd be even better if Argyle started talking about basketball to Theo, and then the bear shot Theo. Oh, that would be amazing. What goes around comes around, bitch. I love that so much. (laughs) He high-fives the bear, alley-oop. And it turns out that the the bear was Seth MacFarlane the whole time. (laughs) That's right. Holy crap. I just shot that guy in the head. (laughs) Not Peter Griffin. It's important to note. Right. 
McLean slowly walks down the hallway toward Hans, Eddie, and Holly. Eddie, who was, you know, the guard the whole time. Now he's up in the vault because there's nothing to guard anymore. Nothing to guard, but I like how you have that backlighting on Bruce Willis as he's like slowly dragging himself across the floor with the machine gun. He looks bad. He walks in and, and, and Bruce Willis just improvs a line. Hi, honey. It's perfect. So good. It has like that slight amount of, I just went through some shit. I'm a little (laughs) deranged in the head, but also I got this and I think you know I got this. Exactly. Hans is holding Holly at gunpoint and he orders John to drop his weapon and put his hands behind his head. And then he goes and mocks John some more for being a cowboy because he just, he can't drop this cowboy thing. And then Hans points his gun at John and he repeats his line, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Which is hysterical. And I'm very happy that John McClane realizes how funny it is when Hans Gruber says it back. And even Eddie, the security guard, starts laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. All three of them laughing hysterically. And Holly's like, what the fuck is going on? And she's like, oh, John's got a plan here. Yep. McClane grabs the handgun taped to his back with season's greetings tape, fires a shot at Hans, sending him stumbling backwards, and a second one right between Eddie's eyes. And the only thing I hate about this is that he had a blow on the barrel at the end of it. Like, whew, like, God, oh, that is so corny that it I is, hated it. It's pretty corny, but it's also like, yeah, I fucking did it. Yeah, it is. It didn't <laughs> need to be there. Hans stumbles backwards and falls out the window, but he's still holding on to Holly, slowly aiming his gun up at the McLeans as he dangles from the window. And John unclasps Holly's watch and sends Hans plummeting to the ground. And this right here is like a special bit of directing also. Because they told Alan Rickman, we're going to drop you on three. Mm-hmm. Not from an obvious skyscraper. Come on, they're not that crazy. Right. But he still had to do enough of a drop for them to film to get the reaction. They said they're going to drop him on three. They dropped him on two. Completely real reaction from Alan Rickman. So good. I love it. It's perfect. In the rubble outside, John finally meets Al, and they both hug it out, and they thank each other. Deputy Chief Robinson comes up, and he's like, McLean! He chews him out for the damage to the building. And Carl, who we, we thought was dead, hanging, dangling in the, in the stairwell, arises from the rubble and aims a gun at McLean. And everyone takes cover, except Al, who shoots Carl like five or six times. Yeah, he goes to town on him. And Al's got that whole problem where he's now a desk jockey because he accidentally shot a kid earlier in his career. And he's right. like, I'm not going to discharge my weapon ever again. Then sure enough, hours later, he's busy shooting this guy in the chest multiple times to protect his new best friend that he just found about who won't even say bye in a second. That's right. Argyle rams the limo through the garage's gate and John and Holly start walking toward the limo because John's like, that's, that's my limo. We're, we're going to get out of here. And on the way, they're stopped by Thornburg for an interview and Holly punches him right in the mouth. It's wonderful. And it's like, yes, this guy had this coming the whole time. I love it. I really hope they reference it often in Die Hard 2. <laughs> the couple get in the limo and they kiss as as we look at them through the the rear view window which is a little cliche but i i also kind of love it and then they drive away from the burning nakatomi plaza i love it too the part i don't love about it is that john McLean just went through all of this and he is in need of some serious medical attention absolutely he is he got shot in the shoulder yeah, he did, but instead he's just going to get in this limo and drive away. Not even going to talk to anybody else about nope. this terrorist attack on this building. Just, I'm done. I did my job. Honestly, it's a vibe. I get it. Like, uh, no, I just did everything. I don't care about your debriefing or your bullshit. I just want to fucking leave. It's the right move. 
And of course, you have all this paperwork flying around from the from the explosion of the building, and it looks like it's snowing. And the credits roll with "Let it snow, let it snow." And this paperwork is falling for forever because they presumably had to come down from the thirtieth floor. Which don't know why John McClane didn't just walk down at some point else. It seemed like he had the stairwell all to himself. Yeah, but I don't know how long it takes paper to fall off a skyscraper. But let's just assume it's forever. It's a, it's a very long time. It's all still falling in L.A. now, all this paperwork from this movie. But <laughs> that is Die Hard from 1988, directed by the John fucking McTiernan. I am fully torqued right now, and I just want to go punch and shoot things and jump off things and even just go barefoot walking over glass. Like yeah, I am. 100%. I've never felt this fucking manly, Brian, Same. ever. I adore. Adore this movie. I will not hesitate to say that I think it's the best action movie ever made. See, that's a tricky one because I'm a really big fan of T2. Okay, yeah, but this might be the best action movie ever made. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely top three. I think that's very fair, and it is a Christmas movie, and it is a comic book movie, and it is based on a book written by Roderick Thorpe. That's true. Called Nothing Lasts Forever, which sounds like a Bond title. It really, really does, and weirdly enough. It should have been Frank Sinatra and not Bruce Willis, because this is technically the sequel to the 1968 film The Detective. That's true. And Frank Sinatra held the rights to any sequels going forward, and I think he was like 72 at the time when this thing got yeah. announced like in the 80s, and he's like, I am 72. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I'm not going to be the guy running around barefoot in a, in a building over glass and getting shot at on account of being 70 fucking two. So old Blue Eyes pussied out, and they gave it to Bruce Willis. Wait, comedy actor Bruce Willis? Yep, who was literally the last name on everyone's list. Oh, man, the list was insane. Richard Gere, Sly Stallone, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Schwarzenegger, Eastwood, De Niro. I mean, they, they were going to give this to Burt Reynolds and Michael Madsen at one point. They, they were going nuts with this thing. Everyone turned it down, and Bruce Willis turned it down. Several times, until they were like... We redid the script. Because that's what matters in this movie is the script. <laughs> Which is crazy to me because, like, they say in the commentary that they were still working on the script while shooting, like, half this movie. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. That happens more often than you think. That's, that's another thing that, that always surprises me. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why animation I like so much because you know it's a, it's a full story when they start. That's a very good point. But let me ask you this. Rotten Tomatoes, 1-100. What do you think? 99. 94. So okay. not that far off. Audience score is also 94. Huh. Roger Ebert saw this movie and he gave it two out of four stars. How dare he? He said, the idea has a certain allure to it. A cop is trapped inside a high rise with a team of desperate terrorists. Mm -hmm. He is all that stands between them and their hostages. Give the terrorist leader brains and a personality. Make one of the hostages the estranged wife of the cop. And you've got a movie. You sure do. On a technical level, there's a lot to be said for Die Hard. It's when we get to some of the unnecessary adornments of the script that the movie shoots itself in the foot. Willis remains in constant radio contact with a police officer on the ground who tries to keep his morale up. Mm -hmm. But then the filmmakers introduce a gratuitous and unnecessary additional character, the deputy police chief, <laughs> who doubts that the guy on the other end of the radio is really a New York cop at all. Dwayne. And Ebert just keeps going on about the addition of this character because he says, 
As nearly as I can tell, the deputy chief is in the movie for only one purpose, to be consistently wrong at every step of the way and to provide a phony counterpoint to Willis's progress. The character is so willfully useless, so dumb, so much of a product of the idiot plot syndrome that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Thrillers like this need to be well-oiled machines with not a single wasted moment. Inappropriate and wrong-headed interruptions reveal the fragile nature of the plot and prevent it from working. Wow. He did not like the deputy That's chief harsh. Burial. It is harsh. And on poor Paul Gleason. Who's a treat, but I also I get it. I do get it. I mean, I will say probably the most unnecessary part of the movie. Sure. But, I mean, you always have to have in a police investigation somebody proposing an alternate set of events. Like, hey, maybe this guy's working with the terrorists. You ever think of that, Al? It's appropriate, but it also diminishes Al and his hunch. But Al's a good cop. Yeah. The deputy chief is not. And no, it's as simple as that. Maybe it also it helps develop Powell's character, too. Having this guy here that's going against him at every point, and, and Powell's like, no, I'm sticking with this. I'm, I'm here for this McLean guy. He's got nothing to lose, really. Right. He's not really putting a whole lot on the line by sticking with McLean. But overall, Ebert, yeah, he thought it was meh. Yeah, that's... um. That's unfortunate, because I've grown to like Ebert and respect him, and now, I don't know. I don't well, know. you know him. He just has some <laughs> wild takes on some things sometimes, where Absolutely. you think you know where he's going, and then, and then yeah. He'll completely swerve, and, and get, you don't see it coming. He'll get hung up on Paul Gleason. Exactly. <laughs> People who didn't get hung up on Paul Gleason reside on Letterboxd. Oh, goody. From December 24th, 2019. John McClane be walking around the Nakatomi Plaza barefoot like it's a fucking Quentin Tarantino fantasy. <laughs> From December 24th, 2016. I love it. This and copious amounts of alcohol are the only things that get me through Christmas. Who wrote that? Was it me? It might have been you. <laughs> <laughs> From March 31st, 2016, straight up utilizes the interior and occasionally exterior Spatial construction of the archetypical edifice nearly as well as Kubrick did with The Shining. Wow, that's high praise. It is really high praise, and we'll get there. We will. But I like that a lot. I do too. From June 26, 2019, it's funny because I literally only watched this movie to understand Brooklyn Nine-Nine references, <laughs> and now I literally love it. Of course, because it's such a damn good movie. It really, really is. And the last one I have is from December 6th, 2021, John McClane was really hobbling around Nakatomi Plaza Hobbit style in the filthiest tank top I have ever seen, and that's what Christmas is all about. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> I love it. Little tiny Tim in there, little reference to the, the thing we talked about last week. Full circle, sort of. Good enough. How about we give this thing a super Two score? Two weeks ago? Let's do that. But first... Booby, it's time for another edition to Cape Podcast. It's Dana. It's Christmas time, and Keaton Patty has done a few of these Christmas bot scripts, so it only feels appropriate to do one now. Uh, this one is: I forced a bot to watch over a thousand hours of Hallmark Christmas movies again. <laughs> And then asked it to write another Hallmark Christmas movie of its own. Here's the first page. You might remember in Jingle All the Way, we also did a Hallmark Christmas movie. Yes, we did. And this one, Dave, you're going to be playing the woman and her fiance while I do the narration and the Christmas tree salesman. 
Oh boy, uh, that's a lot of heavy lifting for me. <laughs> I think you can manage. I appreciate you having the confidence in me. Thank you. <laughs> Christmas is a tree you must marry. <laughs> Exterior tree sales dealership in small ski town. A woman and her fiancé shop for a tree to summon Santa Claus. They love Christmas and consume only candy in cane form. The sky, <laughs> the sky snows water on them. They do not know of Hanukkah. Let us pick this wood. Resembles you. Engaged and asking for kiss. The fiancé kisses the tree and it falls on him and he dies from trunk wounds. <laughs> the woman's eyes leak salt ornaments. Ho, ho, no! I needed him for my wedding. For me, love is coal. Tree seller, angel heaven god, inspects the events in a manly way. He's the town's tallest unwed object. <laughs> All want his hugs. Telephone the police, Mr. Hunk. Tell them a tree deserves prison and that I am now single like you. Oh, but why? All is good tidings. <laughs> the woman looks. Fiance's body is gone. Nothing is very dead. Thought my boyfriend opened death's gift. Am I single or simply insane? Your body carols a Christmas fever? Angel presses his personal mistletoe against the woman's head. <laughs> it glows red, indicating severe Christmas fever. Nog! Will I die before Santa dies? Of course, yes, but not now. The fever cures if married on Jesus Eve. I will marry you healthy. We see now that Christmas miracle... <laughs> <laughs> We see now that Christmas miracled fiance's ghost into the tree that slayed him. And that's, you know, like a sleigh. Like a sleigh that you ride on, yes. He talks, but only the woman can hear his trilly word logs. This does not break any Bible rules. I love how it says fiance, wooden. Like, that's the direction it gives. <laughs> he lies like the devil. Only true tree love gives the Christmas cure. Must marry me, your fiancé, the tree, tree fiancé, triancé, me, I'm me. The woman screams. She has just now found out about Hanukkah. <laughs> that is my new favorite one. Uh, it's so insane. I oh love it. God, Keaton Patty so on good. Twitter. Just phenomenal. Crushing it. Completely crushing it. As always. Now let's give this thing a super stuff score. Start off with story and motivation. So the story is an estranged couple is meeting on Christmas Eve at a holiday party on an opposite coast and shenanigans ensue. Yeah. Yeah. Shenanigans ensue hard. No shenanigans have ever ensued harder. Until die harder. That's fair. <laughs> I love the story of this thing just because it is so simple. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a, one man against unfathomable odds contained in one building. Right. And we're going to get there in a second. You sure are. I'm going to go one for story and motivation. Even though, ah, oh, hold on. The motivation's a little funky to me. Because John McClain could have just left the building pretty easily by just walking down 30 flights of stairs. Yeah, but his wife was still being held hostage. So what's that going to change? His wife's still going to be held hostage. He can go in and help, at least, instead of just pulling fire alarms and throwing things out windows and hoping for the best. He didn't know this, but he could not have just walked out the door because there were there were henchmen guarding the doors. One! Eddie! Yeah, but they He's also- got 50 bucks on the game! They also locked all the doors. That's a good point, but he didn't know that. He didn't know lots of things. He didn't try to get out of this building all that much. I don't, I don't think he ever intended to- 
get out so much as he wanted to stop what was happening inside. I'll go 0.75. I'll adjust from the one I was going to say. Mm, I already typed. Okay, 0.75. <laughs> Even if you use the argument, I already typed that. I was like, okay. <laughs> Hero. Now, I think this one we actually should talk about hero and villain simultaneously. Okay, let's do it. Because they are very, very connected. They absolutely are. The interesting thing about the villain is that the villain is the protagonist of the story. Interesting. And I say that because the villain is the one who has the clear motivation and the clear goal throughout this movie, and his foil, his obstacle to overcome is the hero. Is the hero. Itself. That's true. Which makes John McClane the antagonist of this movie, because he is antagonizing Hans Gruber the entire way through this thing. And I think that right there is a bit of a masterstroke from this movie. That's interesting. I've never looked at it that way. So I think I want to give John McClane a one because he is one of the most badass action stars of all time. Yes, absolutely. But I want to give Hans Gruber a two because he's one of the most badass villains of all time. And this is his movie in a lot of ways that's fascinating and i will not fight you on that i these are probably the scores i I would have suggested anyway but the mind fuckery you just pulled on me by revealing that the bad guy was the the protagonist the whole time you just you m night Shyamalan this whole movie after 30 some odd years a twist so it's a one for hero and a two for villain which brings us to parents teamwork it's a zero. Whatever it's going to be, it's a zero. It's got to be a zero. Unfortunately, we do have a hero, and we kind of have to follow the parents' thing there. We do have there. teamwork with, if with you, Al. If you consider, we do. well, no, I was going to say if you're going to if you're going to say Hans Gruber is the protagonist, then the teamwork would be on his end. Well, then it's a zero also because they true. all die. They, they they did all die. Zero, it is. <laughs> Female characters. Bonnie Bedelia crushes it. Bonnie Bedelia is the best and Ginny's there and Ginny is is there to to put a check in the Bechdel box nailed it uh and but let's talk about Holly is the senior vice president of this company and she has no qualms walking up to Gruber and making her demands for her fellow hostages but I think she understands that she's able to make those demands because they're reasonable demands yeah and Gruber seems like a relatively reasonable person it's hard to know that from Holly's perspective at that point. Okay, that's very fair then. This is just a dude who came up into my Christmas party shooting up the place. Also true. I'm kind of going more on a .75 area. Okay. I think that's fair. she doesn't fair. do a whole lot to assist John McClane. Right. She just is there to provide stakes. Yeah. And tension. Almost a fridge situation. But she does stuff while she's in the fridge. Right, which Barely. is something. It's something. 0.75, and maybe a dirty 0.75, but a 0.75 nonetheless. Setting. Nakatomi Tower, and it is laid out beautifully. Absolutely. And they do these establishing shots when they first intro the party, and you see how the the foyer is set up. And then John goes through the floors, and you see, like, okay, this is what's on this floor, this is what's on this floor. And you have the full layout of these top floors of this building Everything makes sense geographically throughout the whole movie. And floors, let's say 3 through 29, do not matter to this movie. So we do not see them. Exactly. I think that this is a brilliant way to establish a location geographically. I'm going to go with an easy one. Easy one. Which brings us to style and tone. 
It's an action flick. It is. It's shot really, really well. It's in shot one super spot well. for the most part in this, this building. Actually, this movie is shot in a way that no movies were being shot in the 80s. What do you mean? With these cuts while the camera is moving was unheard of in 88 in American cinema. That's really interesting. I didn't even consider that. And for that reason, I think I'm going to go one. This kind of is a, a trendsetter. One for style and tone, which brings us to the music. It's like a variation of Ode to Joy oh, the man. entire way through. They are just crushing it with the Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy is the villain's theme, where John McClane has his own, like this, kind of thing Yeah, going that's on. fine and all. I, I'm more interested in the villain's theme, to tell you the truth, Which I is, think it's more interesting. It's, it's very interesting that they would use Ode to Joy, because the reason he didn't want to make these guys terrorists, per se, was because... He didn't want their cause to be political and alienate viewers. So he was like, okay, they're, they're secretly doing a heist, but posing as terrorists because heists are fun. Heists are a lot of fun. You have something to root for. And you can see the joy in these, these characters when they successfully do things on their trip to getting this money. And then he chose Ode to Joy. And I guess Michael Kamen, who did the music, was like, you want me to do what with Beethoven? <laughs> And it took McTiernan telling Michael Kamen that um, the theme of ultraviolence was Ode to Joy. And he was like, all right, never mind. I'm in. Sold. Absolutely. Perfect. So I still think it's only okay. Really? Yeah. I think it's interesting what they did with it, but I'm still probably going to go like 0.75. Okay. I'll take it. Mostly because the McLean theme, I just don't even remember off the top of my head at all. Yeah, it's nothing to me. (laughs) Oh, well, you haven't sat with the DVD screen selection menu up for like a day and a half <laughs> <laughs> why would i brian <laughs> i don't know it's like i'm gonna watch die hard i just haven't got to the tv yet so just forever <laughs> one-liners you know what brian my gift to you i'm going to say two it's one of the most quotable movies from the 80s for sure and not even just that it's one of the most quotable movies of all time forever and ever the lines in this movie are second to nearly no other movie. <laughs> it is super cool. I mean, like, there and there's so many smaller level one-liners from this movie that you don't even think about, but when you hear them, you're like, I die hard, right, right. Absolutely, it's like that. This movie's phenomenal. Two's probably way too high, but tis the season. Disagree, but agree with the two. Fair enough. Final category, impact on the genre. The genre being comic book movies. That is correct. It got a lot of sequels. It got a ton of sequels. Uh, it is in the National Film Registry. It did cost $28 million to make, and it did do $141 million. So this thing is a it's, large hit. Yeah, it's not small potatoes, that's for sure. In terms of comic book movies, it's us grasping at straws to be able to talk about this one a little bit. I mean, it does have has original stories told in comics. Die Hard Year One exists. It's in my shelf right over here. The influence it had on comic book movies, though, would really have to be on a thematic level from like, you know, die hard on a train, die hard on a plane, die hard with Batman or something like that. You know, just the the imprint it had on action movies in general, because specifically comic book movies, you know, every action movie goes like, oh, yeah, we're inspired by die hard. But it's hard to really quantify that when it comes to comic books. I think that this one's going to fall into the realm of where Lord of the Rings fell into. I think that's probably And I think a .75 is probably fair, we're going to call it. 
I, I like that. 0.75 because, yeah, that's totally fair. And that's going to give Die Hard a final score, but perfect 10. Nailed it! Absolutely crushed it. 10 out it of 10. It is the most perfect thing we've ever done. I don't know how he did it, but damn it, we did it. Do you like podcasts where <laughs> the score is supposed to go to 10 and sometimes it goes under, and but sometimes they end up a perfect 10? Okay, podcasters, Inc. Sometimes we go a lot over, but really it's just, it just depends on how we feel in the moment when we're saying asinine shit like threes and negatives. And but well, sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get it just right and you get a ten out of ten on the K K Podcasters Inc. It's all arbitrary, baby. It's all arbitrary, but this one feels right. It feels perfect, and I love it. That leads me to ask you, what are we talking about next month? Next month, all month long. Indiana Jones, as far as the eye can see. Next week, we're starting it off with Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we just keep keep that ball rolling while we run in front of it. That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> and I honestly cannot wait for this month, I'm going to call it. We've been talking about it now for months. It's true. And it's finally here. And man, if you thought I was excited for Die Hard, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, the nipples just keep getting more and more ch- chiseled. Hey, do you have nipples that aren't chiseled, but you want chiseled nipples? Come to Chiseled Nipples, Inc. I just, like, imagine, like, Adam Sandler uncut gem just holding my nipples right now. Because <laughs> that's how much of a diamond cutter they are, knowing that we just did Die Hard, and Indiana Jones is now coming up on the horizon. Oh, yeah. All very exciting. Until then, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Join us on Patreon for Gremlins this month, next month for Groundhog Day. Email us your questions and comments, kpodcastersgmail.com. Follow us on our social media at kpodcasters, especially on Facebook, where we always put up a, a post on the day we record asking for your questions and comments. And we got a bunch. A bunch. Yay. Bill Hawkins wrote in, he asked, is there a better major film debut than Alan Rickman in Die Hard? No. Agreed. His second question is, is there a better that guy among 80s henchmen than Al Leong? Uli? Uli. He was also in, I want to say he was also in um, Lethal Weapon as like a henchman. And that's, that's phenomenal. Good for him. Just henching it all over the town. He's also in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure as Genghis Khan. Yes, he is. Oh my God, that's right. So, uh, no is the answer, Phil. No is the answer. Hey, Hey, do you have a movie and you need a that guy? You, we uh, Come on down to Al Leung Incorporated. We'll, we'll, we'll give you that guy and he'll be in your movie and people will be like, hey, it's that guy. That's exactly it. I'll point him out in a second. <laughs> and his third question is, did this movie pave the way for the 1991 major motion picture crime caper musical comedy, The Hudson Hawk? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I agree again. Vincent Misafra said, yippee ki motherfucker, is probably one of the top icon movie one-liners of all time. Yes. What is your top three? My, ooh. Ooh. Just off the top of the dome, the first thing that came to my head, which is interesting, uh, the wrong kid died. Yeah, that's walk hard all over. I don't know why, but that popped in my head immediately. I've always been a big fan of the closing line of Some Like It Hot. That's... Probably my number one of all time because I use Nobody's Perfect. Nobody's Perfect is so good. So much. It's so the good. absolute perfect line to go out on. And I'm having a hard time not going with Yippie motherfucker because it's top of mind right now. So those are my top three. There you go. Those are very, very, very good. Um, nobody's Perfect is definitely on my list. We're on a mission from God, Blues Brothers. Oh, hell yes. So high on my list. Yes. 
And I think my third would probably be like Caddyshack, Cinderella Story. Like I I always go to that for okay. some reason. Like in my head, I don't know why. Or another Caddyshack of like, I got a pool and a pond. A pond would be good for you. Like, <laughs> I think Caddyshack's like where my idiot brain humor loves to live. Sure. It's a good place for it. Pick any line from Caddyshack. Uh, nobody's perfect. And brought a mission from God. And there you go. There's my top three. Personal. Boom. I love it. She doesn't even go here. <laughs> That's right. I'll mean girls all over you. You nailed it. Good job. Jeff Miners wrote in. He's got a couple questions for us. He says, so Brian, Dave, Booby, what Christmas movie <laughs> do you always love watching even after its 20th or 50th watch? He Ooh. said for him, it's a Christmas Carol, the classic one with George C. Scott, because damn it, that man can act. And that's a very good pick. True, true. I'm a big fan of The Year Without a Santa Claus. That's a very good one. Um, And also A Christmas Story. A Christmas Story is a very, very good one. I get a little tired of it sometimes if I watch it too many times in a year. Sure. With mine, it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas just because everyone here knows I have a strange obsession with Dr. Seuss. So <laughs> there you go. You sure do. That checks out. I got kids. They love listening to that rhyming bullshit and daddy stumbling over fox and socks. Yeah. Of course. But if you give me It's a Wonderful Life, I'm not going to complain either. Oh, absolutely. I'm a sucker for that movie. And his second question is, in the holiday tradition, a wed bed behead. Oh, okay. Cool. Which isn't in the holiday tradition at all. It's actually an action sabotage movie that he wants us to go ahead and do. And okay. the three movies that he's named for a wed bed behead are Die Hard, Air Force One, and Speed. Okay, so Die Hard, Die Hard on a Plane, and Die Hard on a Bus. Exactly. I'm going to marry Die Hard. As you should. I'm going to bed Air Force One, and I'm going <laughs> to behead Speed. I can go either way with those second two, depending on the day. But right now, in the moment, as I sit here talking to all of you, I agree. I mean, any chance I have to behead Sandra Bullock, I'm in. I know you are, but <laughs> I was more going like the Gary Oldman. He's terrific. He is. Everybody, thank you for your questions. Thank you so, so, so much for hanging out with us this whole year. I know this time of the year is really stressful, and hopefully listening to us talk about Die Hard helps out just a little bit. Yeah, that's all we want, just to help out a little bit. Not a lot of bit. We're not good for that. No. Just a little bit. You can't lean on us too hard, but we're here to help you a little bit. It's like Tiny Tim's crutch. As he gets older, <laughs> it's going to become weird if that crutch still stays little. And he's not going to want to lean on that all that much. You're all adults, presumably. If you're a kid listening to this, high five, kid. You're cool. You're very cool. But sincerely, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. We love it's... you all, except for one of you, but thank you. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been an interesting year, and uh, we, we're glad you've been around for the, the ride. And hopefully 2022 be another banger. Yeah, we hope it won't suck. <laughs> That's our model for 2022. We're starting it off in a good way. So, Brian, you got anything else? That's it for me. Fantastic. We're going to see you guys next year, where next month we're talking about all the Indiana Jones movies. So next week we're starting off with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Same pod time. Same pod. Boobie.
What's this? A post-credit? We haven't done one of these in a long time. It's been a long time, but again, tis the season. Tis the season. Jake Tapper, the legend that he is, took the time to write a Christmas poem about Die Hard. The best kind of Christmas poem is a poem about Die Hard. I completely agree there. Really helps ring in the season. "'Twas the night before Christmas at Nakatomi Tower, when our story of homecoming begins with brute power. At Los Angeles Airport, meet our savior, McLean. With toys for his kids, he disembarks from his plane. Do not see that this tale is about Christmas's folly. Did I mention that Mrs. McLean's name is Holly? How about some Christmas music, McLean asks of Argyle. That is Christmas music, the driver says with a smile. To reunite with Holly, his aim is shared with shy laughter. Twould be a holiday miracle to last ever after. You throw quite a party, says John to Takagi-san. I didn't know they had Christmas in Japan. John is weary from travel. Holly offers a bed. While down in the lobby, the guard's shot in the head. In Theo, in Kyle, in Tony, and Fritz. Into the party, the armed thugs run a blitz. Argyle still waits. This is long before Uber, while havoc is wreaked by the evil Hans Gruber. John McClane, he escapes, saves the day he's just gotta. Without shoes, he tracks blood as if bearing wounds of stigmata. One thug tries to kill him, but that German's too slow. Now John McClane has a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Sergeant Al Powell is told of disturbance. In response, the fake guard feigns a bit of perturbance. Does he hear anything? The answer is no, except for the song, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Merry Christmas, says Powell, not realizing the peril, driving off while he sings a beloved Christmas carol. A corpse falls from above with a clear rationale. McLean says to the cop, Welcome to the party, pal. Gruber talks to McLean, or rather he sneers. Survival would be a miracle. He plays on his fears. The policeman is bloodied and in dire need of sucker. Yippee-ki-yay, McLean says, motherfucker. A woman hostage with child in of its glory is also a part of our Christmas Eve story. With Johnny McSee traveling great distance, with hope and with love of fighting evil resistance. Theo, a wise man, who's also quite naughty, is stealing the money in spirit quite haughty. Ellis, the Judas, attempts an amenity by disclosing the cowboy's secret identity. McLean gets a bad feeling and asks Sergeant Powell to relay to his wife a redemptive avowal. When things panned out for her, I should have been behind her all the way. He says this thinking he'll never see the light of day. I got it, says the sergeant, but you can tell her yourself in a scene that's as seasonal as a reindeer or elf. I hope so, but that's up to the guy upstairs, says McLean, who's traveled far for peace but encountered only pain. If Christmas's love, rebirth, and a savior, McLean was all the above in his die-hard behavior. God was truly with him. The success was empirical. At Nakatomi, they experienced a miracle. That die-hard is a Christmas film seems to me just a fact. I declare this without any holiday tact. But whether you agree or your disapproval won't cease, I wish you a season of love and of peace.